Clara's Country Candles is today's sponsor of Brain Fertilizer. Clara's Country Candles has a new line of savory scents that will seduce your snoot. Whether it's Niece's liver pudding or country ham and red-eye gravy, Meemaw's buttermilk biscuits or Petula's pimento cheese, Clara's savory scents will take you back to your grandmama's kitchen. And Clara has given me a sneak preview of her follow-up scents. Shrimp and grits, collard greens, jambalaya, and Brunswick stew all will be available just in time for Christmas. So light up your life and your olfactory senses with Clara's Country Candles. Mmm, they smell so good. Hey, y'all. It's Elvis Week for this edition of Brain Fertilizer, the podcast of the Dead Mule School of Southern Literature. I am Virginia Lee, the official voice of the Dead Mule. Pretty much everyone around the world knows who Elvis was, even though he's been dead more than 40 years. Some people disregard him, others adore him. Some accuse him of cultural appropriation, and others believe he invented rock and roll. Still others consider Elvis's life and legacy to be worthy of academic study. Me? Well, I won't lie. For about the first 26 years of my life, I didn't I didn't think much of Elvis. Granted, I didn't give him much of a chance because of my dad. My dad, well, he hated Elvis. And yes, I know that's a harsh word to use, but it's the unadulterated truth. My daddy and Elvis went to the same high school in Memphis. I'm sure they never crossed paths at school because my dad was three years older than Elvis and had skipped grades. It seemed to gall him, however, just knowing Elvis had gone to the same school he had. My dad, as brilliant as he was in many ways, was just not rational when it came to Elvis. I remember asking Mama about it when I read a book about Elvis, while at the University of Mississippi. Mama always glommed onto all my school books back then, and it surprised me how fast she grabbed that one. When she was done, she said, you have to read this right now. There's so much of your dad's history in there. I did as I was told and read it, but I didn't really understand what she meant, so I asked her. My dad, apparently, made less than charitable comments about Elvis's family living in a Memphis housing project when they first got there from Mississippi. I was really shocked by this because I'd been raised to believe that my dad did not hold such classist viewpoints. Upon reflection, though, I realized that I'd heard Daddy say something along those lines and referring to Elvis's trash when I had an Elvis movie on the TV once. Another thing my dad hated about Elvis was his presence at the big gospel sings that my grandmother used to have Daddy escort her to when he was a teenager. Back in the day, this would have been the late 40s, they used to have big concerts in a huge auditorium in downtown Memphis that were all gospel music. They were not exactly revivals, to my understanding, just folks performing and singing gospel music. Daddy would take Grandma Lorez and would have to be all gussied up in his Sunday best. But Elvis? Elvis used to apparently sneak in via the stage door and watch from the back, and occasionally he'd get invited to sing for folks. 
I'm sure that really made my father mad and, well, jealous. Another thing that likely added to my dad's animosity regarding Elvis was that Elvis was in the army. My dad was rejected from military service because his eyesight was exceptionally poor, and I believe that akin to Faulkner, my dad felt less of a man because of having not served. Anyhow, all those things, and likely more about which I don't know, meant Daddy never had a nice thing to say about Elvis. And wow, <laughs> he couldn't have been more wrong. As a vocalist, actor, and writer, I personally find Elvis to be inspiring. I also consider him a tragic figure in many ways. His life and death had definite Southern Gothic elements to them. My mother and I were actually in Memphis when he died. My Didi, the one of the lost chocolate pie recipe, was in Methodist Hospital for a hip replacement or some such, and I remember the news break coming over her hospital room television announcing that Elvis was dead. For some reason, I never visited Graceland during all my visits to and years living in Memphis, though. It's in a part of town I didn't get to often, and I generally didn't think about it except during the Christmas season once the blue lights were lit, and then I'd drive by and, well, feel melancholy. Elvis, of course, is still loved by millions and likely will be in perpetuity. The Elvites, my nickname for Elvis devotees, congregate in Memphis year-round, but particularly during his birthday week and the anniversary of his death. The latter is why I chose to feature him for this episode of Brain Fertilizer. And I fully expect to feature him again, too, at some point. I have at least a half dozen short stories that have Elvis elements myself, and I'm hoping to find more stories and memoirs in The Dead Mule. If you have any, you should send them in. I'd love to see them. And who knows? I may even read one or more for brain fertilizer. Today's memoir is by Deb Jellett. Here is her Southern legitimacy statement. I was born and raised in Mobile, Alabama, but never learned to be a cute or sweet purdy girl, so I moved to England where surliness is appreciated. I have been a teacher, a lawyer, and a business owner. I am now blissfully retired. Daddy Elvis by Deb Jellett, published in August 2013 in the Deb Mule School of Southern Literature. It was 1963, an era in which each and every summer all self-respecting American families were obliged to climb into the battleship caddy, mom and dad in the front, kids in the back, and to spend two miserable, interminable weeks together on vacation. My dad always drove. My mom sat with some map or other on her lap. Why she did this is a mystery. She couldn't read maps. My brother and I sat in the back drawing imaginary lines across the midpoint of the seat and daring one another to cross over. Squabbling usually ensued. Hush, Mama would say, or Daddy'll take a belt to you. We did Texas one summer, 
Washington, D.C. another year. At every stop, I shopped for state charms for my charm bracelet, and Mama bought cookbooks that usually called for Campbell's soup to be poured over canned vegetables. That summer, we were touring our native South. My brother and I yawned our way through a tour of the Alabama State Legislature and some equally boring caverns. Our next stop was Tennessee. Mama was singing Chattanooga Choo Choo, and my brother and I, temporarily united by embarrassment at our parents' behavior, declared peace and rolled our eyes at each other. At the time, Elvis Presley was somewhere in between playing state fairs and being an international megastar. I, of course, was already hopelessly in love with him. So we just had to go to Memphis, and I had to, had to, had to see Elvis's Memphis home, Graceland. It's hard to believe, but Dad drove the Cadillac through the open gates of Graceland, and we got out and walked around. I took pictures of Elvis's burgeoning car collection. The place appeared to be deserted. We walked around to the back of the house, and there was Elvis's daddy, Vernon. He was cleaning the biggest swimming pool I'd ever seen. He waved and shouted, Hey! and came over, shook my father's hand. He was only around 40 years old, but he seemed ancient to me. He had enormous ears and brown hair that was poofed up and swept back in Jerry Lee Lewis style. He was not a handsome man, but you could see something of Elvis's face in his. And no, Elvis wasn't around, but Vernon was happy to give us the cook's tour of the grounds, and later I got a picture of him and me standing by the pool and another one of me standing on the steps of Graceland. He took my name and address, and for years I got Graceland Christmas cards. The first year, Vernon signed it himself and penned a note. Come over here any time and help me clean the pool. Ha <laughs> ha! Tour completed, we said our goodbyes to Vernon and piled back into the hot car. A fine man, my father opined. My mother agreed and picked up a map. Indeed. But he wasn't Elvis. The end. I can't help but grin at Jellet's last line. But he wasn't Elvis. You see, during my time living and working in Memphis, I often encountered Elvis tribute artists. Soon after my mother and I moved there in 1989, I kept running across photo shoots in Midtown that were apparently for a calendar featuring various tribute artists. When I was working at the Memphis Zoo as a dino guide one summer during their Dinosaurs Live exhibit, a troop of ETAs in full Elvis drag came through. Years later, when Mama and I lived downtown, I got on the streetcar one day and there were at least a half dozen ETAs heading to the Memphis Convention Center where the Elvis Tribute Artist Contest was being held. Elvi were everywhere and often in the most unexpected places. I'm sure that seeing Elvi all over the place is one reason I find myself writing about Elvis, the Elvi, and the Elvites every now and again. I haven't run across such up here in Rhode Island, but 
during the brief time I spent in Cincinnati one summer, I was given the my favorite memorabilia sighting ever in a big Kroger grocery store when I saw an entire shelf of Elvis teddy bears. There's something mystical about Elvis. His impact is still felt all these decades after his passing, and he is an inspiration to many, including our next writer, Jerry Almond. Here is Jerry Almond's Southern Legitimacy Statement. I was born in South Georgia and grew up in North Florida, 20 miles from the Georgia state line. My childhood revolved around church twice on Sundays and a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. We'd make a 10-mile trip into town for groceries on Saturday afternoons. Memories include tobacco picking, cane grindings, and riding my horse Duke through pig trails in the woods. When I was eight, the preacher immersed me in holy baptism in the Suwannee River, where I hoped a water moccasin wouldn't bite my bare feet. When I was 18, I left the farm and never looked back. Decades later, I'm still trying to make sense of my quirky, wacky roots. I Believe in Elvis by Jerry Almond, published in The Dead Mule, February 2020. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm really here. Our RV travels had finally landed us at Graceland. Elvis Presley's mansion. The sprawling tourist complex included his airplane, several museums, restaurants, gift shops, and an on-site Sirius radio station. My mind exploded with childhood memories, and poor Michael was the lone recipient of my gushing thoughts. I didn't care that the temperature approached 100 and the humidity index was close behind. My heart pitter-patted and my spirit soared. I usually hate tourist attractions, but I love it here. Why is this so different? It's because you're at Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee, my sometimes astute husband answered. Let's get out of the sun. Michael steered me towards an open-air cafe with ceiling fans spinning on the highest speed. I'll get us some water. When Michael returned with two sweating bottles of Dasani, I continued my stream of consciousness, blurting, Remember Elvis's All Shook Up? I must have been nine or ten when that record came out. It sure feels good to sit down for a few minutes, my husband. And I were obviously not on the same page. I felt like I'd burst out of my skin, and Michael acted as if he were somehow indulging me by coming to some hokey attraction. I bought the record in Savannah. We'd gone there to visit my grandmother. I could hardly wait to get home and play it 50 times. Riding home, I put the record on the shelf behind the back seat, not realizing it would be in the sun. By the time we got home, it had warped and was totally ruined. I cried and cried. Oh, I don't get it, Michael said. I liked Elvis as a kid, but I never went batshit over him the way the girls did. I just liked his music. Oh, I don't know that I'd call it batshit. That sounds pretty crude, but I sure had a crush on him. I used to fantasize that someday I'd meet him and that maybe he'd fall in love with me. <laughs> 
And then he up and died. I'd been devastated when Elvis passed away in 1977. It hadn't mattered that I was 29 years old at the time. I reacted like a starstruck teeny bopper. Life in the South during the 50s and 60s revolved around school and church for isolated farm families like mine. Our Southern Baptist Church subscribed to Hellfire and Damnation religion. A large, bellowing preacher delivered the sermons, and he scared the bejesus out of the little girls like me. School, in contrast, was a safe zone, one where I excelled and never had any reason to cower. Rock and roll is the devil's work, preacher Leroy screamed to the small congregation that Sunday night. The devil is strong, but our Lord is stronger. I scrunched down to Mama on the hard pew, trying to listen. I knew I'd fall asleep if he didn't end soon. Elvis Presley is an agent of the devil. I perked up at the mention of Elvis. I'd heard him on the radio and really liked his music. Finally, Preacher Leroy slowed down, softened his voice, and started closing his sermon. We must protect our children from the devil and this sinful rock and roll music. We must keep our children pure and good, like God wants them to be. Ms. Bernice, the church's pianist, eased herself up to the piano and started playing Rock of Ages softly in the background. Preacher Lou Roy slipped around to the front of the pulpit for the invocation, inviting sinners to walk down the aisle to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Although I loved Rock of Ages, I wish Miss Bernice had chosen a livelier song to play. The foot-stomping, hand-clapping, body-swaying gospel music was the thing that I loved best about church. Preacher Leroy's tirade against Elvis Presley and rock and roll continued for years. In the beginning, I worried that Daddy, a deacon in the church, would take the preacher's words literally and throw away my Elvis records. I spent time rehearsing what I'd do if that happened. Maybe run away from home? Tell him he wasn't my real father and I hated him? I couldn't imagine life without Elvis's music in it. Preacher Leroy found more ammunition for his rock music diatribe in 1964 when the Beatles first appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. My family had huddled around our new RCA black and white television set that Sunday night to see what the fuss was all about. Even Daddy sat mesmerized. I'd pretty much stopped worrying about his reaction to the preacher's condemnation of rock and roll. I suspected Daddy's tolerance had to do with Mama's moderating influence. While she'd never talked to me about it, I knew Mama had her own problems with both Daddy and with the church. Whatever reasons, I was glad my parents let me keep my rock and roll records. While rock and roll was my favorite, that gospel music on Sunday nights moved me. Ms. Bernice had become my heroine and role model. I'd have sold my soul to the devil to play the piano like she did. Can I take piano lessons, please? My begging started at age 10. 
Peggy Sue, preacher Leroy's niece, had started lessons a year earlier and could now play a couple of simple hymns for Sunday school. I was jealous. I wanted to play piano at church, too. Before long, Mama found an old upright piano for $75 and hired Miss Bernice to teach me how to play it. Oh, thank you, thank you. I promised to practice hard. What I promised myself, however, was that I'd outshine Peggy Sue. I wanted the grown-ups, especially Miss Bernice, to give me the same smile and approval they gave to Peggy Sue. Somewhere in all that body bumping, hip grinding, pelvic thrust and rock and roll, a yearning arose in my sinful self that, well, did not feel spiritual. While Miss Bernice's music touched my soul, Elvis's music awakened sensations in my body, feelings I didn't understand. I don't know what was going on in Peggy Sue's life. I knew she wasn't listening to Elvis Presley. But she and I had discovered boys at about the same time, and we both zeroed in on Junior Webb, the cutest of the boys in the church. We both wanted him as our boyfriend. I thought Junior was mine until a surprise altercation in the church parking lot after services one Sunday morning. What do you mean he's your boyfriend now? I raised my voice to Peggy Sue in disbelief, attracting attention from several nearby church members. She smiled, handed me the note Junior had passed to her on the back pew just minutes earlier. Seems she'd sent him a note asking if he'd be her boyfriend, and he'd answered yes. I screamed my rage and barely stopped myself from clawing out her eyeballs. Word of our fight got back to Preacher Leroy. The sermon that night was about the sin that happened on the church grounds that morning. Repent! Preacher Leroy's voice boomed through the small church sanctuary. His hands clenched the pulpit, sweat glistened on his forehead, and spittle flew from his mouth. Says right here in Luke 5.32, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. His eyes scanned the congregation as if daring anyone to question. Something happened this morning on our church grounds. Oh no, I scrunched down on the back pew. Somebody had told him. My friend Sandra, sitting beside me, elbowed my ribs and whispered, You're in big trouble. Sermons generally lasted about 30 minutes. Preacher Leroy had already preached 40. I tried to tune him out, especially when he started saying, Even children could burn in hell. I couldn't ignore him, though, since I knew he was talking about me. In Job 11.14, God said, If iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away, and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. Preacher Leroy lowered his voice, a signal he was winding down. Miss Bernice eased her way up to the piano. The invocation was about to begin. My palms oozed sweat. My heart hammered, my breath caught in my throat. I am not going to cry, not in front of all these people. Tonight, 
I'm asking anyone who sinned to come down here before God and this congregation and say, I'm sorry. The preacher's eyes crawled across the congregation. Ms. Bernice began playing Amazing Grace softly so everyone could hear the preacher's words over the music. She hadn't finished the first verse before Peggy Sue, her body racked in sobs, stumbled to the altar. Preacher Leroy smiled down at her, pat- patted her shoulder like she was a baby, and turned her to face the congregation. In a quieter voice, he said, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Peggy Sue's snuffles subsided, and with her Uncle Leroy's arm around her shoulder, a smile emerged. Her expression grew triumphant when her eyes locked on me in the back of the church. Verse 2, verse 3. Ms. Bernice continued to play. People squirmed in their seats. Preacher Leroy's piercing eyes found me and bored in. Everyone turned in their seats to see who he'd zeroed in on. Mama and Daddy turned, expressions of surprise on their faces. I slouched deeper in the pew, wishing I could disappear, those amazing grace words racing through my head. Was I a wretch? Lost? Would walking down the aisle make me forgive Peggy Sue? I wasn't about to take back what I called her, not after what she called me. As Miss Bernice continued playing, Preacher Leroy issued his final call, this one leaving no doubt what he wanted. Geraldine Almond, please come down to the altar. I sat there so still I could have been dead. I glared at the preacher, not believing he called out my name like that. I wondered if God was watching and what he'd be thinking about all this. Daddy stood up and turned toward me, sending a look, saying I'd better get my butt up to the altar. Seeing no way out, I jerked up, so angry I could spit nails. As I stomped down the aisle, I prayed tears would not dribble down my cheeks. I will not cry, became my marching mantra. I planted myself at Preacher Leroy's side, opposite Peggy Sue. Okay, girls, tell the church what happened this morning. We're going to stay here until this is settled. It's her fault, I blurted. She stole my boyfriend, and then she called me a bad name. But, 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 Uncle, she called me a whore. Peggy Sue must have put sugar in her voice. It sounded so syrupy. But she started it. She called me a pros... Prosclitude first, I said. I wasn't about to admit I'd not known what the word meant until I'd looked it up in the dictionary and practiced saying it. I wanted to convey the injustice of what had happened. Junior was my boyfriend. I hoped I wouldn't cry because before I finished my say. She passed him a note and then he was her boyfriend. And that's not right. My voice quivered. 
my eyes locked onto my enemies. I was so mad I could burst. I knew I'd scored a point, though. Preacher Leroy didn't let Peggy Sue have boyfriends, and I just ratted her out. I stood tall, my head high, my chest inflated in righteous indignation. Now, girls, Preacher Leroy sounded surprised. You're both too young to be having boyfriends. What are you, Geraldine, about ten now? Yes, sir. I tried to be meek and respectful. We'll hash this out later, but right now, I want you to both tell God and church that you're sorry. Calling ugly names is very unchristian. Peggy Sue and I glowered at each other. Finally, her expression softened and I'm sorry whispered from her mouth. I puckered my lips, scowled, and took a deep breath. With as much scorn as I could muster, I spat out, sorry, and sent a geyser of saliva in Peggy Sue's direction. I could tell that neither Daddy or Preacher Leroy was particularly impressed with my apology. I didn't care. When the service ended, I bolted to the car, buried myself in the back seat, and burst out crying. Within a couple of weeks, Peggy Sue and I were best friends again, the spat over Junior forgotten. Whispering secrets, giggling, and having sleepovers were far more fun than having Junior as a boyfriend. Although the friendship with Peggy Sue survived, I'm afraid my relationship with God and the church suffered. I couldn't have found the words back then, but what Preacher Leroy did that night just didn't feel right. I was trying hard to be a good girl and having the preacher call me out in front of the entire church for saying one bad word seemed unfair. Amazing Grace, as promised in the song, eluded me that night and would continue to do so. I fulfilled my promise to myself to outshine Peggy Sue on the piano. I practiced hard and within a year alternated with Peggy Sue as Sunday school pianist. A year after that, Peggy Sue stopped taking lessons after the preacher promoted me to church pianist. I'd bested her at last. Ms. Bernice decided I needed to study under a better piano teacher and told Mama to take me to Mr. Whitlock, the only conservatory-trained teacher in the county. I hated leaving Miss Bernice, but no matter how hard I practiced, I couldn't play gospel music like she did. She taught me how to embellish with a few trills and riffs, to go up and down by octaves, and to even transpose into different keys, but she'd not been able to make my hands capture the soulful abandon that oozed from her fingertips. Mr. Whitlock introduced me to classical music, and for a while I forgot about both gospel music and rock and roll. I loved the classical composers. Bach was my favorite. The mathematical precision of a fugue or a two-part invention satisfied in a different way from those old gospel songs. Bach triggered a quiet thrill, an exquisite elevating euphoria that contrasted dramatically with the rousing footstomp and passion of gospel. But then, 
I'd go back to Ms. Bernice's gospel music and feel it was the pure essence of God, primitive, powerful, raw. At other times, Mr. Whitlock's classical pieces seemed to arouse primordial feelings that took me to places too deep for words. My relationships with God, Preacher Leroy, and the Baptist Church remained tenuous at best. Adolescence arrived, and with it, my rebellion slept, crept, and then leapt. I said to Daddy at the supper table one evening, I don't want to play the piano at church anymore. I want to be a concert pianist when I grow up. Mr. Whitlock thinks I'm good enough. Daddy didn't say anything for a long time. We'll see, he said, after what I felt was an interminable silence. Mama didn't say a word. About a week later, Daddy turned to me at the supper table. You want to be a concert pianist, but you don't want to play in church anymore. That's right, I said. You like those piano lessons I pay for every week, right? Yes, sir, I said with as much respect as I could muster. We were poor, and I knew the lessons were expensive. Well, if you want to keep taking those lessons, then you need to be playing the piano in church. He went back to eating his summer. I sat there making rows of green peas with my fork. When my anger finally erupted, I bolted from the table, ran to my room, and slammed the door behind me. The next day, I told Daddy I'd do it. I continued as church pianist for two more years before he finally let me quit. I never asked what made him change his mind. During my senior year in high school, I traded four Elvis LPs for one soundtrack from The Sound of Music. After falling in love with classical music, I'd essentially put Elvis on the shelf behind the back seat in the car. At 18, I left the farm and I never looked back. I forgot all about Preacher Leroy, Ms. Bernice, and that soul-stirring Sunday night gospel music that had lifted me to such euphoria I could have spoken in tongues or handled serpents. In college, my music passions drifted to Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Arlo Guthrie, hippie folk music rather than mainstream Elvis and pretentious Broadway tunes. I studied piano through my freshman year of college before admitting I preferred partying to spending all those hours in practice rooms on campus. In retrospect, I made a good decision. While I loved the fugues, mazurkas, and sonatas, I played like a technician, not an inspired musician. Somehow the spirit which had infused Ms. Bernice's piano playing never reached my tarnished core. Not with gospel music, not with classical music. Perhaps the devil had taken my soul after all. Or maybe I just didn't want to work that hard anymore. You need to join the 21st century, Michael told me. I'm putting serious radio in your car. I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when my childhood rushed back to overwhelm me. A Sunday morning, South Village Drive, driving home from Lowe's Garden Shop with the new plants in the back of my car. 
I'd fumbled with the dial on my new Sirius XM radio, and suddenly, Elvis Presley's How Great Thou Art filled the car. I started and then turned the volume up and up. I sang along, and tears blurred my vision. The hymn ended, and without a moment's pause, another began. I'd discovered Sunday morning gospel time on Elvis Radio, Channel 19, broadcast live from Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee. I didn't tell Michael that I'd discovered the Elvis station on Sirius Radio, or that I deliberately started running errands on Sunday morning so that I could listen to the weekly gospel program in the privacy of my car. It felt like a dirty, illicit secret, like I was cheating on my husband. Listening to Elvis was an exquisitely pleasurable indulgence that awakened stirrings in every cell in my body again, and it made me want to visit Graceland. When we bought the RV a few years later, I experienced an aha moment. We could make a pilgrimage to Memphis to see this Elvis shrine. It would be like going to Mecca. I could deal with my husband's disdain. I could already hear his surly comments about how mundane he'd find the entire experience. I didn't care. Going to Graceland became something that I had to do. With the trip planned, I no longer hid my reawakened obsession over everything Elvis. I brought along my newly purchased Elvis CDs for the RV, and I punched Channel 19 into my serious dial every time we got into the car. It felt good to go public with my new obsession. Well, they certainly know how to carry a theme around here, don't they? Michael asked. His question was rhetorical. There's nothing around here that's not Elvis for at least a five-mile radius. He was right. We were camping at the Graceland RV Park. The museums, the Sirius radio station, and Elvis's airplane were all within a block. The mansion where Elvis had lived was a short shuttle bus ride away. Loudspeakers in every restaurant and parking lot blasted Elvis songs nonstop during the day and into the night. Our RV park featured a pink Cadillac shuttle service that took folks to and from a local Elvis-themed restaurant. Every gas station, grocery store, and gift shop around offered t-shirts, posters, and every Elvis souvenir imaginable. It was an overwhelming immersion into Elvis culture. Graceland triggered a bombardment of memories, especially about the church and preacher Leroy's public humiliation of me as a child. The preacher had so terrorized me, I remembered thinking I might be safer in the hands of the devil than trying to follow his straight and narrow road to heaven. Maybe I gave up on God, decided I couldn't win, so why try? Elvis had filled me up when I'd been a child, and now Graceland filled me up as an adult. I felt like I'd found a long-lost, deeply buried child, the one that used to be me. I'd never admitted to, to having pain over my childhood losses. Community, church, spirituality, trust in adults, music, innocence, Elvis, God, not even to myself until now.
I complain sometimes about how rough travel is in our RV. If Michael fills his travel mug too full, coffee sloshes out when we hit bumps. Items left on the kitchen counter, like apples or the bottle opener, sometimes land in the sink or on the floor. Our garbage can spills over if we don't wedge it in between the end of the bed and the wall. I have trouble reading because my iPad jiggles too much. Working on my laptop is impossible. The bouncing of our Class C motorhome is real, not just my imagination. An incident happened about a year after our Graceland trip, and I now joke that Elvis might still be alive. We packed up from a campground in Nebraska one morning and headed off to Hot Springs, South Dakota, a hundred miles down the road. When we got there and I walked around to unhitch the car, I found Michael's Graceland coffee mug, coffee at the halfway mark, sitting on the back bumper of the RV. He'd forgotten and left it in there during our packing at the last campground. Not a single drop had spilled. If that doesn't make me believe in God, it at least makes me believe in Elvis. The End Do you believe in Elvis, dear listener? I sure do, and (laughs) that would sure irritate my late daddy. (laughs) Well, that wraps up this episode of Brain Fertilizer the official podcast of the Deadmule School of Southern Literature. Please visit the Brain Fertilizer pages at www.deadmule.com, patreon.com slash brain fertilizer, and anchor.fm slash brain fertilizer. As ever, I am Virginia Lee, the voice of the Deadmule. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Well, folks, I'm not much of a cook, but with the savory scents of Clara's country candles at my cute cottage, smells, well, it smells like I've been cooking all day. If you love the wafting aromas of Niece's liver pudding, country ham and red-eye gravy, Meemaw's buttermilk biscuits, and Petula's pimento cheese. You just stop on by Clara's Country Candles and pick up a few of her savory scented candles. Oh, they smell so good! <laughs>